Good morning. Well, Luke chapter 1 is where we are this morning and really all this month as we continue <clears throat> looking at the Christmas story. It uh, was so nicely read for us. We're in verses 26 through 38, so make sure you keep a finger there as we move on through the morning. The first report I ever wrote was in second grade at Mar Vista Elementary School for Miss Northnagel. And I wrote about the inventor of the cotton gin, Eli Whitney. And from that point until the end of 12th grade, I, like you, wrote a bunch of reports. I remember one I wrote in sixth grade on the planning and the founding and the development of Washington, D.C. And I put it in a green folder and I got a postcard of a moon rock that I had purchased at the Smithsonian Institute. I pasted inside the front cover and turned it in. Then I remember <coughs> was either 10th or 11th grade writing, writing a report on the Russian cleric Rasputin, the mad monk. And I was fascinated with the control he had over certain members of the Russian royal family. Well, I wrote a bunch, you wrote a bunch of reports, and from all that writing, I'm sure that you, like I, remember at least these two things. First of all, what you wrote had to be true, right? The sources needed to be reputable, the facts needed to be in keeping with reality. And the second thing you needed to do was write with clarity. Uh, you, you had to be clear. At the very least, everything had to hold together, and at best, you were compelling in your presentation. Well, these two components of a well-written report are foundational to what Luke is doing here in this gospel, as well as its companion volume, the book of Acts. Because Luke's purpose in writing these two books is to heighten uh, the truth and the clarity uh, uh, of the, so that Theophilus, his one-man audience, can be certain of what it is Luke is writing about, what Theophilus has already been taught. So I want you to hear how Luke expresses that purpose at the very beginning of this book. You can look right down at verse 1, and then we'll look at the beginning of, of Acts as well. Luke chapter 1 begins like this. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, so there's the truth piece, to write an orderly account, there's the clarity piece, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's that truth piece again. Listen to how he communicates uh, his purpose at the beginning of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. There again is 
Luke's aim at clarity, a well-ordered account. And then he goes on to write this. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering. How did, you do, how did you do that? By many proofs. There's the truth piece again. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now I think it's important to recognize Luke's overriding emphasis on truth and clarity, especially in this passage this morning because its main point is the main point of this month's entire series, and it is this. There is nothing, or rather, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. In fact, God trades in the realm of the impossible. He's known for it as the curtain comes up uh, on the Old Testament. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18.14. And he's known for it as the curtain comes up on the New Testament. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19.26. So nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Not even the greatest impossibility, and that is the forgiveness of sins. Your sins. Sins of omission and sins of commission, sins of the flesh and sins of the heart, sins committed against yourself and committed against others, those that you've forgotten and those that you cannot forget. God has proven that he can perform this great impossibility of forgiveness by having performed a series of, of, uh, we might say, lesser impossibilities all of which are recorded in Scripture, some of which are recorded in the book at which we're looking, the first one of which we saw last week, when a woman who could never bear children and was at this point in her life way too old to have children becomes pregnant with a child who would prepare the way for the one chosen to take away the sins of the world. About that, as well as what's before us here today, Luke wants to be crystal clear and highly accurate so that anyone who hears his account doesn't have to doubt its origins, but can be certain of its truth. And so this morning we are going to examine three things in this passage. First, we're going to take a look at the setting in which God performed this impossibility, then we're going to look at the main person through whom God performed this impossibility. And then finally, we're going to look at the posture required to embrace this impossibility. So that's the way forward this morning, setting, person, and posture. Let's begin by looking at the setting in which God performed this impossibility. You'll see it there, right, in verses 26 and 27. You'll see how Luke is careful to address the time at which this event occurred, the place in which the event occurred, and the people who are all a part of it. At the beginning of verse 26, we see that this story takes place in the sixth month after Elizabeth has become pregnant with John the Baptist, revealing the interconnectedness of these two stories. In fact, if you take them and you put them side by side, you realize uh, a great uh, 
the, the complementary nature of the two passages in terms of time and characters and purpose. Then notice at the end of 26 the place in which this event occurred. A city located in the district of Galilee, specifically named Nazareth. So Luke records not only the region, but the very town in which this all occurred, uh, reinforcing the historic nature of the event. And that uh, further enforces the certainty for which Luke is hoping in the mind of Theophilus. Now, now note well, and you've heard me say this before, but, and you'll hear me say it again, but this story did not take place in Narnia. Didn't take place in Middle Earth. It's not a Christmas story that was invented at the North Pole down the road from Santa's workshop. Rather, it took place in a location that you can find on a modern map. It is a place to which you can travel and visit even today. So this is a real place. But, but the reality of this place and the location of this place reinforces the human impossibility of what we're about to see. Because it didn't occur where one would have expected, which is in Jerusalem, which was the ethnic and religious epicenter of the Jewish world. That's where, you, that's where you'd expect to find the Jewish Messiah. Rather, this account takes place in a humble little hamlet way off the beaten path among a population of uh, Jews and half-breeds with no known record in pre-Christian history until one was finally discovered in 1962. So Nazareth is a personification of nowhere. It's small. It's, it's, it's not even an afterthought. Well, if nothing else, this event and, and the teeny tiny size of Nazareth should give hope to the little man whom God not only sees and with whom he identifies, but as we see here and will be reminded in the upcoming weeks, even comes and visits. Emmanuel, God with us. A great reminder of Christmas right there. Finally, notice in the middle of verse 26 and then all the way through verse 27, the persons identified with this event. We've got Gabriel, he's the great messenger. He's sent in verse 26 by God and he uh, dutifully accomplishes his task beginning in verse 28 and following. And other than his visit to Zechariah the previous week, the only other time we see Gabriel in the scripture is when he visits Daniel back in the Old Testament. So Gabriel's presence in this story heightens the drama of the event. The next name we encounter is that of Joseph. And I want you to notice three things about Joseph. First of all, he is named, as is Gabriel, as is Mary. These are not anonymous, fictional characters. The second thing I want you to notice is that he is from the house of David, which means that Joseph has royal blood coursing through his veins. His son is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, which may lead you to ask, then, why are they living in Nazareth? How come they're not 
living down at the capital in Jerusalem. Well, they're there for the same reason that the uh, present heir to the Russian throne lives in Spain. There are contrary forces in power. And for Jesus' family, uh, those are the Romans. The third thing we notice is that Joseph is betrothed to Mary, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. Each and every one of these details adds historical perspective and precision to Luke's account and heightens the certainty that he wants for Theophilus. Finally, there is Mary, who, as we'll see here, encounters the triune God uh, unlike any other person in history. She was visited by a messenger from God the Father there in verse 28. She's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit in verse 35 so that she would bear God the Son also in verse 35, making her truly blessed among women, certainly worthy of our admiration. In fact, as one scholar puts it, just because others have thought too much of Mary, we must not not imagine that our Lord is pleased when we think too little of her. We as part of the subsequent Christian generations are to call her blessed. So that's the setting in which this all takes place, the time and the place and the persons. Now the second thing we're going to look at this morning is the main person through whom God works out this great impossibility. And the first thing that Luke wants Theophilus to know about her is that she's a virgin. In fact, even before revealing her name, the fact of her virginity is stated for a second time. And when Mary finally speaks up, it's to exclaim the fact that she's a virgin. So Mary's virginity is vital to this story, though some would have you think otherwise. In fact, I just saw a book the other day that's being published to um, uh, dissuade people from believing that Mary was a virgin. So I want to just press the pause button here for a moment, step aside, take you into my office. We're going to have a little conversation about this. Uh, oftentimes when this is brought up, a person will refer back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where we read, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then sometimes that person will point out that the Hebrew word translated virgin is more accurately translated young woman. And it's true. It is. But it's also a word that can be understood to mean virgin. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain, and I'll do so by telling you one of my most embarrassing stories. Summer of 1981, a friend and I are backpacking through Western Europe. Uh, Along the way, we stayed in the Swiss Alpine village of Gimmelwald. Not Grindelwald, Gimmelwald. Higher up, uh, located in the shadow of the Jungfrau, one of the main summits in the Bernese Alps. Maybe some of you have been there. Well, I understood the name Jungfrau to mean young woman because In German, jung means young, and frau means woman. Jungfrau, young woman. Well, fast forward a few years, and I'm working at a church that 
hosts a steady stream of German-speaking Bible college students from Europe. And among the first arrivals are a pair of young women, each of whom I refer to as Jungfrau. So uh, they'll show up in an event and I would announce, the Jungfrau is here. Or uh, we're off on some event and we're scrambling to get in cars and I'll ask, does somebody have room for the Jungfrau? (laughs) Well, yeah, you can hear it coming. (laughs) These two sweet young ladies, about a month after their arrival, take me aside and I can still see their, their countenances. Randy, yes, we are Jungfrau, but you have to understand, Jungfrau means virgin. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'm turning like 15 shades of red, and uh, I'm remembering every single time that I had referred to them as Jungfrau. And I learned a lesson. And the lesson was this, while a word can mean this, it may also be understood to mean that. And that's why when Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language back in the third century BC came across the word Alma in the Hebrew, they didn't render it young woman, they rendered it virgin. So Mary is a virgin. That's the first thing that Luke wants Theophilus to know. The second thing Luke says about Mary is that she is betrothed. And that reveals at least a couple of things. First, that she and Joseph have completed two parts of the ancient three-part marriage process. Part one being the uh, um, deed of betrothal, which is written up and signed. Part two being the bride price, so money has been exchanged by the fathers. And then there's this year-long waiting period, and that's the point at which we meet Mary and Joseph. Uh, So they have consented together in holy wedlock, but they have not yet consummated the marriage, which is the third part of the marriage process. The second thing the betrothal period reveals is Mary's age. Now, I'm sure that you've heard something about this uh, at some point along the way, but it's well worth repeating. So um, put on your seatbelt, because back in the first century, the betrothal of uh, a Jewish girl occurred somewhere between the ages of 10 and 14. 10 and 14. So if Mary was the average age of a betrothed girl in that day, not only in the Jewish subculture, but the larger Roman culture as well, it was more than likely that she was probably only 12 and a half years old. I'm going to take a swig of water and let you think about that. (laughs) 12 and a half, which means that Mary was the age of a seventh grade girl. Middle schoolers, I don't think there are any middle schoolers in here, maybe there are especially if you're a middle school girl, take notice. Because if an illiterate peasant girl is capable of what we're about to read, and she clearly was, then a challenge has been leveled. 
first to you and then to all of us concerning what we ought to expect of ourselves in terms of Bible knowledge and godly obedience. And that leads to the third thing that Luke tells Theophilus about Mary, and that is her amazing encounter with the angel Gabriel. Concerning that, the first thing about which Luke wants Theophilus to be certain is Mary's favored status. You see that there in verse number 28. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. How beautiful. Favor. Grace is really the word. Grace lavished on Mary without request. The Lord's presence revealed to her without invitation. In fact, that word favor or grace is used by Luke time and again through the book of Acts to describe what God does for his people by his good pleasure. Just as God graced Mary by coming to her in her weakness and vulnerability, so too does he grace all who stand before him in that same delicate state. The second thing about which Luke wants Theophilus to be certain is Mary's troubled response. You see that there in verse 29. In fact, she was greatly troubled. Uh, She was perplexed. Uh, The word, it's, it's a compound word, which means that she was intensely curious about what it was she was seeing, but she was also intensely concerned. We also see in verse 30 that Mary, like Zacharias, was frightened by her encounter with Gabriel and certainly with cause. Because even though Mary was illiterate, she had learned the scripture at home and at the synagogue and had no doubt been taught about some of the frightening encounters between sinful men and a holy God. Like Jacob, who said, for I've seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. He assumed he would die. Or Gideon, who saw the Lord and thought it was all over until he was reassured, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Or Samson's parents, who saw the Lord and exclaimed, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Mary knew enough to be frightened in the Lord's presence. The question is, do you? Christmas is the perfect season to thoughtfully center down on the Lord. And like Mary, to gaze on his presence by way of his word and to be troubled at his greatness. His great holiness and our great sinfulness. And yet, to be humbled by his grace and to be grateful for his mercy. Let all mortal flesh keep silent, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. The third thing about which Luke wants Theophilus to be certain is Mary's high privilege. And you'll find that there in verse number 31, where we see that Mary is going to conceive, she's going to give birth to a son, and his name will be called Jesus. And then it continues in verse 32, where Gabriel informs Mary that Jesus is going to be great. Well, just how great is Jesus going to be? Well, Elizabeth's baby uh, was called prophet of the Most High. Mary's baby is going to be called son 
of the Most High. And it goes on. He's going to be given David's throne, promised back in Genesis 49, established in 2 Samuel 7, reconfirmed in Psalm 89. I mean, if Mary's standing up at this point, she's probably looking for someplace to steady herself. And it just keeps coming. Mary's baby is going to reign over the house of Jacob, and he'll do so forever. So that uh, as we learn in Revelation 11, even those who have thrones in heaven are going to vacate those thrones so that they can bow down before Mary's baby. And what's more, Jesus' kingdom will have no end, which may have reminded Mary of what she had been taught concerning Daniel when he saw the Son of Man, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, if Mary uh, had steadied herself, she was probably looking for a place to sit at this point. What an announcement. The fourth thing about which Luke wants Theophilus to be certain in this encounter is how this is all going to work out. How's this going to happen for Mary? You know, it's interesting to consider what uh, Mary didn't say in response to Gabriel's announcement. She, She didn't say, nah, I don't think so. I don't, I don't believe it. Which is what Zachariah did, uh, Last week, Eric, Eric taught us about that. He, he was told that his aged wife, Elizabeth, was going to come, become pregnant. He was like, I don't believe it. Uh, like 90-year-old Sarah did back in Genesis when she overheard that she would become pre- uh, pregnant. In fact, she even laughed in disbelief. Neither did Mary say, I wonder what Joseph is going to think. Though she could have, since we know what he thought upon hearing about Mary's pregnancy in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 19, he was going to divorce her, which was a, a, a sincere possibility, as was death, according to a Jewish law in Deuteronomy 22, 24. So what did Mary say? Well, we're told in verse 34 that Mary said, how will this be since I I'm a virgin. Mary doesn't doubt that it's going to happen, but she does wonder how it's going to happen. And Gabriel tells her there in verse 35. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow overshadow you. Scholars agree that there are no sexual overtones in this announcement. Rather, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon Mary in the same way that the Lord filled the tabernacle with his presence, his effulgence, back in Exodus chapter 40. The way he overshadowed those who were present at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. The way he empowered his followers upon the founding of the church in Acts chapters 1 and 2. And then, without asking for any proof as to how this is going to happen, Gabriel offers her some proof that these things are going to happen by announcing the impossible pregnancy of Mary's cousin Elizabeth, which no doubt reminded Mary about the impossible pregnancy of Sarah and the impossible pregnancy of Rebecca and the impossible pregnancy of Rachel, all of which she had been taught 
from the scriptures. And finally, Gabriel concludes this announcement with the point of this whole passage. Seven simple words. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. The Christmas impossibilities of Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth are sealed with this guarantee, a guarantee that is tested time and again throughout the Gospels, a guarantee that is supremely tested when Jesus is killed by those whom he had come to save, a guarantee that is forever proven when the crucified Christ becomes the resurrected Lord. But there's one more thing that Luke wants Theophilus to see in this account, and that's the posture, the posture required to embrace this impossibility. And it's clearly displayed in Mary's response there in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Notice that Mary doesn't respond to Gabriel like Sarah did to her news with disbelief, unbelief, and laughter. Rather, Mary responds with belief in God's word. I am the servant of the Lord. I follow a God for whom nothing is impossible. And she follows with obedience. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm willing to be severely misunderstood for this. I am willing even to die for this. Mary's faith, the faith of a seventh grade girl, provides us on this second Sunday of Advent with a bracing challenge. Do you believe? Do you believe in the God of the impossible? Do you believe that nothing is impossible for God? The God who condescended to human flesh to die for your sins so that you might have life. Do you believe? You can believe, but only on this count if you assume the posture of Mary. Her humility, her obedience, because where meek souls will receive him still, it's there and only there that the dear Christ still enters in. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We know that you can do all things, but we try to do all things. We believe in the God of the impossible. So strengthen us, make us more certain, help us by way of this historic detail, couple it with your Holy Spirit within us, building our faith to make us more certain and to make us better suited to serve you today in this world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.